the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. How should Christians think about the death penalty? And then an interesting update from Alistair Begg. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, friends. Happy Tuesday. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us on this Tuesday afternoon. If you've missed any of our show today or uh, on Monday, go get the podcast, wherever it is, get your podcast. That allows you to listen at your convenience. You can listen to whenever you want. I tend to listen to podcasts when I'm doing the dishes or in the summertime when I'm mowing the lawn or whatever else it might be. Podcasts work really well for me in that way, sometimes when driving, but we would love for you to use that time to listen to our podcast. So you can do that. You can subscribe, rate, review. You can also find us online at 1160hope.com, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Common Good Talk. All right, the death penalty. This is an interesting debate uh, that, that Christian men and women disagree about. Now, one of the biggest death penalty critics uh, in the Christian world is Shane Claiborne. So we have actually had Shane Claiborne on the show before to talk about the death penalty. But Shane Claiborne is unapologetic and to the point where he visits people on death row. He does all sorts of things. And because of that, I wanted to read a little bit from his article. He just wrote at Premier Christianity uh, kind of on the backs of um, this Alabama execution. They convicted they could. Alabama executed convicted murder Kenneth Eugene Smith using nitrogen gas. The first time the method of capital punishment has been used globally. So uh, Shane Claiborne kind of weighed in uh, less about how they killed him, but more about uh, the death penalty in general. Okay. So I want to read a little bit of what Shane Claiborne said. Uh, and then want you to wrestle with it. Because I'm not even saying I necessarily agree with everything Shane Claiborne says here. But like I said, he's an advocate, very much anti-death penalty. So if you're a pro-death penalty person, I just wanted you to hear his reasoning and go, okay, what do I think about that? So if you wouldn't mind, let me just read a little bit of what Claiborne says, and then I'll give you some of my thoughts. Claiborne says, I aspire to be a champion for life on every issue. I believe every person is a child of God made in the image of God. And anytime a life is cut short, we lose a part of God's image in the world. But here's what I found with the death penalty. It is succeeded not in spite of Christians, but because of us. Literally on this issue, we have not been the champions of life. We have been the obstacles. It's counterintuitive and tragic. When you begin to question how the death penalty has survived, you realize the disturbing answer to the question is Christians. The death penalty would not stand a chance in America if it weren't for Christians. Uh, 86% of executions have happened in the Bible Belt, the southern states where Christians are most concentrated. And then Shane Claiborne says the Bible Belt is the death belt 
of America. He gets into race issues, but then he asks this question. If we believe murderers are beyond redemption, we should rip out half the Bible because it was written by them. When we think of the death penalty, we like to think that we're executing the worst of the worst. But the truth is, we're often executing the poorest of the poor. Jeffrey Dahmer didn't get the death penalty. Charles Manson died of natural causes. Ted Kaczynski's still alive. Uh, is he still? I'm not sure he still is, but he did not get the death penalty. Uh, and he goes on and on and on about the death penalty um, kind of leaning towards poverty. But then he gets into theology. He says, I was one of those pro-death penalty Christians for much of my life. I had all the Bible verses to support my case, and I wielded them well. I've always been passionate, even when I'm wrong. But when I started to look at those Bible verses again, I changed my mind. Now, he says, I want to poke a few holes in what he calls the theology of death. Uh, he goes through the Old Testament, but then he, I want to jump us to where he talks about Jesus. A recent poll in the United States showed that 95% of Americans think Jesus would stand against the death penalty. The problem is we have to convince the Christians to take Jesus more seriously. Jesus is the ultimate interrupter of violence, Claiborne writes. On the cross, he took on the powers of death, absorbing all evil, sin, and violence in the world. He put death on display, not in order to glorify it, but to subvert it goes on to talk about the power of forgiveness and tells powerful story uh, of a woman, a mom who hugged the murderer of her kid before that murderer was killed. Uh, and Claiborne ends it this way. Grace gets the last word. All right. So what do we think about this? What do we think about this? What are the reasons, if you're pro-death penalty, what are the reasons that you hold to that theologically? I've shared on this show before uh, that I am against the death penalty. I understand that if something happened to one of my children or to my wife, somebody that I love and care about, uh, I would definitely feel the desire for retribution. So I don't want to make it seem like, oh, I would just forget. I would want retribution. I understand that. I don't understand. I guess I understand it theoretically. But let's talk about this theologically and politically. Uh, many of us Christians claim to be uh, the people of the pro-life, myself included. Uh, we want to uh, stand up for the unborn. We're pro-life for the unborn. We say we want to be pro-life for the immigrant. We want to be pro-life for the poor, for the single mom, whatever else it might be, the least of these. I think under that umbrella then is to be pro-life for the worst of these. And those are the ones who have taken lives, who have done heinous things. But Claiborne also touches on something important. Do we believe that there is anybody outside of God's redemption? Do we believe that, that you can outsin the grace of the cross? Well, we see in the book of Acts that Saul, who 
we come to know later as Paul, he is a murderer. He is overseeing the death of Christians. And yet he is so transformed that he becomes the missionary to the Gentiles for Jesus, for the sake of the gospel. Do we believe that anybody is beyond redemption? See, I don't, I think we don't believe that anyone is beyond redemption. I think we have trouble believing some people deserve redemption. Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, whoever, do they deserve forgiveness and redemption? And that becomes a dangerous game to play. Because then we start asking, do we deserve redemption? Do we deserve forgiveness? I don't think most of us Christians would ever say that, that somebody has out the grace of Jesus, that, that it doesn't extend that far. We just don't like that it does. But if we are people who believe strongly in the gospel, that every person is created in the image of God and who hold to a pro-life ethic and long to see people come to faith, the least of these, but also the worst of these, then I don't see how the death penalty uh, jives. Understanding that if something happened to my family, I would be all of a sudden be probably much more um, in favor of it. But that speaks to my own fallenness and my own struggles. What do you think? Great article there by Shane Claiborne. Even if you disagree with him, I think it gives us uh, a lot to think about. Well, coming up next, we've been talking last week about this controversy with Alistair Begg. I'll, I'll bring you back up to date as to why there's controversy around Alistair Begg. And he made a statement to his church the other day that I found fascinating. We're going to kind of do that about Alistair Begg next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. On this Tuesday evening, I hope that you're heading back to uh, a, a fun night, a good, restful, relaxing night. I know for me, I got some meetings at church, which can be stressful, but can also be life-giving. So um, they, they, we'll see. Uh, I'm excited. We got some exciting stuff happening at our church. We're actually uh, talk about this much more at another date, but we are we're merging with another church in town here. And so there's a million things that need to be done. And uh, so it, it, it's energizing. These conversations are energi energizing. Um, yeah. And, and, and I hope that you have a great night tonight. All right. Alistair Begg, I talked to you and said that we were going to follow up on the controversy from last week with Alistair Begg. For those of you who don't know of the controversy, first of all, background, love Alistair Begg. I'm a big Alistair Begg fan. He, his Truth For Life um, radio show plays right here on AM 1160 and uh, also uh, other places. He's on 1800 uh radio stations nationwide. So Alistair Begg's a big deal. He's also the senior pastor at Parkside Church in Cleveland, Ohio. So he got himself into a major controversy uh, from comments that resurfaced in a podcast from September when he was discussing his new book, The Christian Manifesto. As part of the podcast, Begg touched on a specific question he said a grandmother asked him about her grandson, whom she said was, quote, about to be married to a transgender person and whether she should attend the wedding. 
Uh, despite it being three months old, this often happens, right? This got resurfaced on social media because Alistair Begg said, <clears throat> uh, does, does your grandchild know where you stand? Yes. Have you made this clear? Yes. Then he said, I would go to the wedding. I would go to the wedding and I would bring a gift. And this set the internet on fire. Um, people saying that uh, everything from I have high respect for Alistair Begg, but I think he's wrong. And I think he needs to repent of this to uh, time to cancel Alistair Begg. And I never thought we'd reach the part in the Christian world where we're talking about canceling Alistair Begg. Uh, but that's where we are at. So uh, after initially declining to comment, Alistair Begg addressed the issue in front of his congregation during his Sunday sermon at Parkside Church. So it's a message taken from Luke 15 titled Compassion versus Condemnation. And Begg warned about our, quote, inclination towards Phariseeism that is alive and well within all of our hearts. And then he addressed the topic uh, directly. Alistair Begg said, in that conversation with that grandmother, I was concerned about the well-being of their relationship more than anything else. Hence my counsel. Don't misunderstand that in any way at all. If I was on the receiving end of another question about another situation from another person at another time, I may answer absolutely differently. But in that case, I answered in the way, in that way, and I would not answer in any other way, no matter what anybody says on the internet. Begg also pushed back against critics who called on the Scottish native to repent for his advice. He said, if people want me to recant and to repent, I repent daily because I say a lot of things that I shouldn't say. He said before cracking a joke about his wife, I mean, check with Sue. But he said, but the fact of the matter is I'm not ready to repent over this. I don't have to. In his message, Begg compared the different approaches of Jesus and the Pharisees and how they dealt with the culture of first century Palestine. He said, all the publicans and sinners who said, we got to go meet Jesus and the Pharisees were grumbling. Can you believe this thing? He goes to the house of sinners. He meets with sinners. Now he acknowledged some dissension over his comments, even among his own pastoral team and conceded that on another occasion with a different person, different context, the advice could very well be different. But added beg his advice for this particular situation was more about wrestling with biblical principle than dispensing with a piece of catch all advice for every situation. He says, you got a problem with the grandmother showing up, sitting on the front row in a context that she absolutely despises and sitting on her lap nicely wrapped with beautiful paper and a bow around it as a gift, the gift of a Bible for a granddaughter who knows she knows has no interest in the Bible. But because she believes that the entrance of God's word brings light. She's prepared to trust the Holy Spirit to do work. He says, uh, he says, the Christian has to say, we will not treat you in either of these ways, whether uh, those two ways being reviled or affirmed. We cannot revile you, but we cannot affirm you. And the reason that we can't revile you is the same reason we can't not affirm you because of the Bible, because of God's love, because of his grace and because of his goodness. Okay. So what do you think of Alistair Begg? He, I think a lot of people probably expected for just the sake of um, saving his, his kind of his ministry. I think people thought that he might uh, kind of backtrack, but no, he did not. And I respect that. Uh, he did not backtrack. And I got high amounts of respect for Alistair Begg for that. Again, I've told you as we've discussed this, I'm a big Alistair Begg fan. And I think he's right. 
I think he's right on this. I like his talk there about we neither um, affirm or revile and that the reason is the same. The reason is the Bible and what we see of Jesus in the Bible and his word. Alistair Big did not bend to pressure. He said, I, I, I believe in what I've said here, which is also highly respectable. Friends, I don't, I don't hear Alistair Begg's words there going, I affirm this wedding. Alistair Begg's, he's got the receipts. His track record on uh, issues of gay marriage and other issues of sexuality are bold and lengthy. But it's also gray. Like this grandmother didn't say, would you stand up and say, I affirm this wedding. I'm happy for this wedding. But then the question becomes, when you go to the wedding, are you necessarily affirming it? What are you doing? And I, I think Alistair Begg here is right to say I'm, I'm most concerned about that relationship. Once the foundation has been laid about this is what I think, this is what I believe. But man, the, the, the torches and pitchforks out there right now for Alistair Begg in the Christian um, conservative world right now are pretty concerning for me. Because what he says, you might disagree with what he said. But you have to be able to understand it, at least. This doesn't make him a heretic. This doesn't push him outside of orthodoxy. And the other questions are raised, too. Would you... If we're just going to talk about weddings, do you go to a non-Christian wedding? Do you go to a wedding of divorced people, of a one Christian and one non-Christian, of people who are living together? If that was the question, would the um, the emotion be as high? So I appreciate Alistair Begg weighing in to the criticism and not just putting out a PR statement and not just backing up so that, you know, Truth For Life stays on different platforms or whatever else it might be. I think he raises something that we're all going to need to wrestle with going forward. Where does relationship, what's it look like in his sermon to be pharisaical? What is, where does it look like? No, I need to stand on principle here, no matter what it does to relationship. Like where is that line for us? Anyone who says it's really black and white is, is fooling themselves or just not telling the truth. It's difficult. It's gray. This is the world we live in, and we want to do our best to be Jesus to this world. All right, coming up next, Gospel Coalition had some words to retired pastors, but I think this is a, a word like we touched about in the first hour for retired people in general. Mike Minter writes there, retired pastor, off with the slippers, on with the boots. We're going to talk about that next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today on a Tuesday evening. If you missed any of the show, go get the podcast. Wherever it is, you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, review. You can also find us online at 1160hope.com, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Common Good Talk. All right, we touched on this in the first hour when we talked about are we a culture that uh, values age or values youth? And how do those work in tandem and not against each other in the church and just culturally? Kind of along the same lines, kind of a little different. Uh, Mike Minter 
wrote at the Gospel Coalition. Now, let me give you his background, because I, one thing I dislike is like he's going to talk to retired pastors or just retired people in general. One thing I don't like is like when 30 year olds write an article about retirement or, um, you know, people with one baby write about how you should parent teenagers or whatever. It doesn't mean you don't have wisdom, but it feels like, like, wait till you have some skin in the game. It's what I said yesterday about Tim Keller not writing his first book until he was in his 50s. Uh, sometimes you need to hear from people who are in it. So Mike Minter, he currently serves as a part-time teaching pastor at Rolling Hills Community Church in Franklin, Tennessee, but he's the founding pastor of a church in Virginia where he pastored for 45 years before retiring. So you can see he pastored for 45 years at this church, retired, and now he's help, He's serving as a part-time teaching pastor at this other church. And so he has kind of the chops to write an article entitled Dear Retired Pastor, Off with the Slippers, On with the Boots. So a little background, he says, uh, to his background, he says, after having pastored for 47 years at the church my wife and I founded, I understand. Uh, he understands this kind of, of feeling adrift. What's my purpose now? What do I do now? He said, I welcomed retirement, but it was also unknown. What now, I wondered. He said his wife, Kay, and he had moved from Northern Virginia to the suburbs of Nashville. Would this new chapter be one of rest or work? The answer, it turned out, is both. And he's going to give lessons that he learned. But let me broaden this beyond the pastor, okay? Um, because I think this is um, this is an issue about retirement in general. What is the purpose of retirement? Is it I work 40, 45, 50 years, however many it might be. I save up through my retirement account, my 401k, pension, whatever. And now I'm just going to, like we see in the parable in the book of Luke, uh, put my feet up, eat, drink, and be merry. Is that the goal of retirement? Is it? John Piper's, right? It was um, Don't Waste Your Life, famously, famously. And he, he spoke this at a passion conference too. But John Piper famously in Don't Waste Your Life, which is basically a book about retirement on some level. In, in Don't Waste Your Life, John Piper tells the story of people who had retired and they ended up traveling around just collecting seashells. And uh, they were so proud of it. And his point was, he said it in a very passionate way, you're going to get to the end of your life and stand before almighty God and say, look at my seashells. And it, it got to the point of, it's getting at the point of even when you're retired, what's the purpose of life? When you're retired, what's the purpose that you can lean into? Is there a way that you can use that free time that now you don't have to punch a clock and be somewhere from, you know, nine to five or more likely eight to six or whatever else it might be. So it's with that as the background um, that this pastor, Mike Minter says uh, for him, here's four lessons that he has learned so far in retirement. The first is what I just touched on. Retirement gives the gift of time. Retired pastors, he remember he's writing the pastors, but you know, this could be teachers. It could be anything need physical and emotional renewal. 
They need time to reflect, give thanks, and pray about what's ahead, but they also need to enjoy their families. Perhaps they need time to serve their spouse. My wife has sacrificed for me and our church over the years, and retirement has allowed us to enjoy one another in a different way. It says, surprisingly, we're doing ministry together now in retirement when we were when we were able to when it's different to when I was full-time pastoring. So it gives you the gift of time. Second, retirement is a blessing, not a limitation. After you've rested and replenished, it's time to think about what's next, he says. What surprised me is that getting back into the ministry saddle in a different capacity has been life-giving. That's the stage I'm enjoying, he says, now at a church in Franklin, Tennessee. I'm doing occasional mission work in the Amazon jungle with Justice and Mercy International. When I'm home, I'm training and encouraging local pastors. I have a Sunday school class for those over 60, and they probably get tired of me telling them we have work to do. As retired pastors, we have years of experience and wisdom to share with others. So take inventory of what you've learned. Don't think that your ministry is over. Some of your best years are still coming. Number three, he says, retirement allows space to serve. Retirement allows space to serve without the pressures of preparing and delivering weekly sermons, attending countless meetings, and being part of budget decisions and building programs. I now have the time to serve my church in especially tactile ways. I'm blessed to be part of a community of believers where I can make hospital visits, counsel the struggling, speak to the youth, teach a Sunday school class, and occasionally preach to name a few opportunities. The variety of ways I'm able to serve is a blessing I couldn't have imagined before retirement. He said, ironically, because I'm no longer lead pastor of a congregation, I have more freedom to serve with my gifts. Number four, retirement isn't the end. Uh, He says, this life isn't a stroll, but a hike and a long one at that. Retired pastors aren't just pilgrims. We're older pilgrims and hopefully wiser ones. That's a supreme advantage. What have you been gifted with over the years? Where did that fruit hang from the tree in your full-time ministry? Make the most of your gifts. Be encouraged that you have valuable experience and more to offer than you realize. Younger pastors may not have learned in seminary how to handle criticism or lose close friends over ministry issues or have to have their families live in a fishbowl, but you've been there. You know what perspective and wisdom to offer. You can be a listening year. And he closes this way. Years ago, a friend said to me, I want to finish. I want you to finish well. I gave it some thought and asked myself, what does finishing well look like? Here's what I concluded. Finishing well is finishing with the fewest regrets. And in retirement, you'll never regret putting your boots back on. I think that's really good. Again, he writes to pastors, but I think that's true across the board. Like, I can't wait till the day comes where hopefully I live long enough to be retired but I don't want to be retired so that I don't have anything I have to, or any work to do, any ministry to do. I want to be retired so that there's not things I have to do, places I have to be. But instead, be driven and be able to make decisions by things I'm gifted and passionate to do. Like that's a big difference. And I think if we all view retirement that way, then retirement is the age of greatest ministry opportunity. It's the age of greatest freedom and the age of greatest opportunity to go, who has God made me? What do I want to do? But it's hard. It really is difficult. So if you're out there of the retirement age or you're about to retire, give that some thought. What can retirement allow for me to do uh, 
and how can I kind of build into the church, build into the next generation, build into ministries that I'm passionate about. All right, coming up next, we're going to close the show by asking this question, not an easy one. How do you persevere through difficult times? How do you persevere through difficult times? You're listening to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us as we close out a Tuesday afternoon. Go on on home, hopefully. You're in your car, battling traffic, getting home, or maybe uh, you're already home. I hope that you got a great evening planned for you. One of the things we like to do here as we close out shows, as we send you on your way, sometimes we try to have encouraging stories, funny stories, but other times to just try to give us good news. Like what's some good news that we can hold on to? And and I want to circle back to, I got to preach on this at our church this Sunday. We're doing a a short sermon series, going to end this week about out of Hebrews 12, one through three about running the race. How do we run the race well? And first we have to define what running the race well is. And we've defined it as running it so that at the end we have our faith intact. That we're not limping, we're not crawling, but we bust through that finish line. Faith intact, hearing well done, good and faithful servant, uh, receiving the crown of righteousness. And the question becomes, okay, how do I do that well? If I'm going to run a marathon, which I've never done, but if I'm going to run a marathon, I have to plan for it. I need to get the right shoes. I need to do the right training. I need to have the right commitment. I need to get rid of the things that are going to hold me back. So that's the goal. Run the race well. We just read an article about to retired pastors in which the guy said, I want to finish well. And for him, that means the finishing with no regrets. Faith intact. So with that in mind, uh, how do we do this? Well, when you're running a race, runners will often speak of a point of the race called hitting the wall. It's a point in a race, and I I did some research on this and found, because again, I'm not a runner, that is often around miles 18 to 22 in a marathon because you still have a long way to go, but you've been running for a long time and your legs feel tired, your feet are hurting, you're just like, I don't know if I can finish. And there's a word in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, that, that those runners need to hear, but that we, when we think about the race of life, need to hear. And that word is perseverance. The writer to the Hebrews says, run the race with perseverance. Run the race marked out for us with perseverance. And it struck me this week when preparing that the very fact that the author to the Hebrews says, run with perseverance is a sign that we're going to need, there's going to be seasons of life where we need to persevere. There's going to be times in our life where perseverance is essential, where it is needed because things are difficult. Things are hard. We want to give up. Otherwise, they would just say, hey, run the race and it's easy. We know it's not easy, but here's where we get in trouble. We as uh, Americans, we idolize comfort. We idolize comfort. We, those who are successful have greater comfort. We idolize comfort. 
That might be comfort that comes with a lot of money, comfort that comes with a lot of freedom, a lot of free time, a lot of vacation, whatever else it might be. We idolize comfort. But we, we have a faith that is not comfortable. Jesus himself promises us, I'm doing this off of memory, I believe in John 16, but it might be somewhere else in the book of John. Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. Like it's not a you might, it's a you will have trouble. So the question becomes, acknowledging that there will be trouble in this world, acknowledging that there will be difficulties, there will be hard times, there will be times we want to give up. What do we do, right? Like the, some of you out there are facing health issues in your own life or in the life of, the, of some people you love. Maybe you've lost a loved one. Uh, others of you, there's uh, relationship breakdowns that you don't know what you're going to do with. Maybe there's financial hardship. Uh, maybe there's deconstruction where you're like, I don't know what I believe. All, it could be anything. In this world, you will have trouble. And our trouble looks different from the first century church. It looks different from the church of Africa right now. But it doesn't mean that our life is easy. So when those moments come, and some of you are in them right now, that you want to give up, what will you do? The answer is persevere. The answer is persevere, which begs another question. How do we persevere? What does that even look like? And I, I believe that there are some truths that we can hold on to that allow us to persevere. It's not just I'm going to persevere, but there are some truths that we hold on to that say, you know what? No matter what, I'm, I can persevere. Let me give you some of those truths. One truth is that God is good and God is all powerful. People would have you believe that the problem of evil is means that either God is not all good or not all powerful. And we say that's not true. God is all good. God is all powerful. We hold on to that truth. Secondly, we hold on to the truth uh, that God is present. The Psalms tell us God is near to the brokenhearted. Jesus himself says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will be with you always. See, in hard times, we can often think that God as, is absent, that he has left us to figure it out on our own. But we know it says, I will, God, I'm near to the brokenhearted. I will always be with you. I'm, I'm there no matter what. Hey, whatever you're going through right now, God is present. And so what does his presence provide? It provides peace. Book of Philippians says, uh, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, present your request to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When we're anxious, we pray and God being present says, and I will give you peace that you do not understand in your hard times. If you're ready to give up, know that God is present, turn to him in prayer, receive peace. And then we, we have our perspective, right? Our perspective changes. And that's this, that, that God is powerful. And in Christ, he has won the victory. Paul writes to the Corinthians, where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death, uh, the, the sting of sin is death and the power of, of death is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us 
the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the next verse is, therefore, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Revelation 21 tells us there's coming a day where there will be no more tears. There will be no more cancer. There will be no more death. But there's coming a day where in victory, Jesus reigns and the brokenness and the the heartache of this world, the brokenness of sin and death, it will not be here. There's coming a day. And so at your darkest moments, you can hold on to the fact that there's coming a day and in that you can have hope. Brothers and sisters, it's not a fake perseverance. We can truly persevere because of the, the, the truths of Scripture. God is good. God is present. God gives us peace. He is powerful. He is victorious in Christ. And there is coming a day where Jesus will rule and reign and the sin and the death of this world will be no more. And so we keep running. And the last thing I would say is this. It's hard to keep running and persevere without other people pushing us on. Who are the people in your life who can cheer you on? Keep going. Who are the people in your life who can train with you and who can hold you up, literally hold you up and run with you? Persevere, friends. Run the race well. Till that day when you hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Well, glad that you joined us today. Hope that you have a wonderful Tuesday evening. Join us again tomorrow from four until six. My name is Brian Fromm, and you've been listening to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.